Section 6 of Life of Sir Walter Raleigh by Louise Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 4, Raleigh's First Schemes of Colonization, Part 1. The excitement of court life and his rapid rise in royal favor must have been very dazzling to a young man like Walter Raleigh. But the court did not absorb all his energies, and he continued to take part in Sir Humphrey Gilbert's schemes of colonization and to aid him as far as was possible. For some time the energies of English explorers had been devoted to the discovery of a northwestern passage to Cathay. About the wealth of this country of Cathay many wonderful stories had been told since the 13th century. It was a country to the northeast of China, inhabited by an active and enterprising people, some travellers had found their way thither by land, and the wonderful stories they had told about the wealth which they had seen there had excited men's curiosity and stimulated their avarice. At last, in the fifteenth century, encouraged by the discoveries of Columbus, men began to talk about the possibility of finding a northwestern passage by sea to Cathay. The first man who attempted this was Sebastian Cabot, who was the son of John Cabot, a Venetian who came to Bristol as a merchant, and there, under the patronage of Henry VII, engaged in voyages of discovery in the Atlantic. Columbus was at about the same time exploring the West Indies. John Cabot directed his great voyage of discovery in 1497, more northwards than did Columbus, and saw the mainland of America a year before Columbus first sighted it. After his death, Sebastian Cabot, his youngest son, who had been born at Bristol, carried on his father's schemes of exploration. Still, in spite of the courage and energy of the English explorers, they reaped no such rich fruits from their voyages to the coasts of Labrador and Newfoundland as did the Spaniards in more southern regions. But Cabot was convinced, as his father had been, that it would be possible to discover a new northwestern passage to Cathay, and so open up a trade with that fabled land. His efforts to discover this passage failed as those of so many others have done since. Still men were not discouraged, and others hoped for success where he had been unsuccessful. An attempt was also made to find a northeastern passage to Cathay. This led to the discovery by Richard Chancellor in 1553 of Archangel, the Russian port in the White Sea, and the opening up of the trade with Russia. A company, afterwards known as the Muscovy or Russia Company, was founded by a charter of Queen Mary in 1555 to prosecute this trade, and much interest in Russia and its inhabitants was excited. Still no one had reached Cathay. Belief in its fabulous riches had this good result, that it enticed men to endure endless hardships and perils in their pursuit, and led them to the discovery of new lands. It was desire to find the Northwest Passage which made Humphrey Gilbert first embark on his voyages. The scheme of finding out a passage to Cathay had been dropped for a time, but when he was only twenty-five years old, Gilbert began to do all he could to revive it. At first he met with little encouragement, but in 1576 he published a discourse to prove a passage by the northwest to Cathay and the East Indies. This writing helped to fire Martin Frobisher with ambition. 
he undertook in all three voyages with this object and made many important discoveries in North America. Though Humphrey Gilbert had given the impulse to these voyages, he took no active part in them, owing to disputes and jealousies amongst their organizers. His mind was in consequence directed to more useful schemes, to those plans of colonization which we have seen him trying to carry out in 1578 with the aid of Raleigh and others. Since then, the brilliant success of Drake's voyages had increased, if possible, the thirst for maritime adventure. On the 26th September, 1580, Drake had sailed into Plymouth Harbor in the Golden Hind. He had been away three years, and men had begun to despair of his return. When he came back, everyone was filled with excitement at the story of his wondrous voyage, for he had sailed all round the world and returned laden with treasure which he had won from Spanish ships in Spanish waters. As England was then at peace with Spain, these doings were no better than piracy. But in spite of the complaints of the Spanish ambassador, Elizabeth took no steps to punish Drake. On the contrary, when he brought the golden hind to Deptford, she allowed him to entertain her on board at a splendid banquet, and on that occasion knighted him for his great prowess. It is said that of the treasure brought home by Drake, he was allowed to keep ten thousand pounds for himself, whilst sixty thousand pounds in jewels and money was safely lodged in the tower. It is not strange that the wrath of the Spanish king, Philip II, was great at the loss of this treasure and at the insult offered to his power. Elizabeth affected to restrain, but in truth connived at the piratical expeditions of her subjects in the Spanish seas. English vessels sailed into Spanish ports in South America, plundered and burnt the ships lying in the harbors, and intercepted Spanish vessels bringing home treasure from the colonies. In all this, the English ran terrible risks. If they failed, they were treated as pirates, as their queen was at peace with the Spanish king. They were killed without mercy or subjected to lingering tortures by the Spanish Inquisition. Still, the gain was great enough to make men willing to face the risk, and hatred to Spain was increased by the tales of the horrible sufferings inflicted upon English seamen by the Spaniards. Elizabeth had difficulty in keeping the animosity of her subjects within bounds. She always hoped to prevent an open rupture with Spain, or at least to put off as long as possible, that in the meanwhile she might gain strength and increase her resources. Her policy was to play off France against Spain, and to give enough help to the revolted Netherlanders to enable them to go on with their struggle, so that Spain might be kept busy by them. In the meanwhile, she allowed her subjects to help to fill her treasuries with Spanish gold, so that she might have the means to prepare for the struggle if it should come. We have seen how some of the English seamen were animated by a desire to discover a northwestern passage to Cathay, others by hatred of the Spaniards and love of Spanish treasure, others again, though was yet only a small body, by a desire to found English colonies in America and so to open up a new trade which might be as profitable to England as the trade with New Spain was to the Spaniards. In 1583, Sir Humphrey Gilbert made a second attempt to plant a colony in Newfoundland. He was not rich enough to undertake the expedition solely at his own expense, 
and so got others to share with him the risks and possible profits of the expedition. Raleigh contributed a vessel, the bark Raleigh, and Gilbert sailed from Plymouth Harbour on the 11th of June, 1583, with a little fleet of five vessels. Before leaving, Gilbert received a letter from Raleigh who sent him a token from the Queen, an anchor, guided by a lady, and conveyed to him her wishes for his welfare, adding that she desired him to leave his portrait for her. Gilbert had hardly left Plymouth when he was deserted by the bark Raleigh on the plea of ill health amongst the crew, which seems to have been only an excuse. The rest of the little fleet proceeded on their way. At first Gilbert seemed to meet with success, but his colony failed for the same reasons that so many other schemes of colonization failed in those days. The men were, for the most part, lawless adventurers, some of them pirates and robbers. They wanted to make their fortunes at once. They lacked the perseverance, the industry, the patient endurance of hardships which alone can surmount the difficulties which beset the first planting of a colony everything went wrong, and at last the men clamoured to be taken home. Gilbert was forced to consent and to abandon at least for a time his cherished scheme. He hoped to do a little in the way of exploring the coast on his way home, and left one ship to carry the sick direct to England. Another of the ships struck on a rock and was lost with more than a hundred men. Then the rest of the men grew still more discontented and insisted on being taken home at once. Gilbert was in the smaller of the two ships left, a little vessel called the Squirrel, of only ten tons burden. It was not thought to be seaworthy. Still, he would not listen to any persuasions to leave it, but answered, I will not forsake my little company going homeward, with whom I have passed so many storms and perils. They met with very foul weather, but Gilbert kept up his spirits, and when the other vessel, the Golden Hind, drew near, the Squirrel cried out to its crew, we are as near to heaven by sea as by land. That night the squirrel was on ahead, when suddenly the crew of the Golden Hind saw her lights disappear, and nothing more was ever seen or heard of Sir Humphrey Gilbert. The Golden Hind reached Falmouth on the 22nd September, some three months after the starting of the expedition. It was left to Sir Walter Raleigh to pursue his schemes of colonization alone. In March 1584, Elizabeth gave him a charter authorizing him and his heirs to discover and take possession of any lands not actually possessed of any Christian prince. He and his heirs were to have the right of governing in perpetuity any colony founded within the next six years. Raleigh did not turn his attention to the cold districts where Gilbert had tried to found his colony. He wished to explore more southern regions he fitted out and dispatched two barks under Captains Philip Amadis and Arthur Barlow, with orders to explore the coast north of Florida. The fertility of this district had been discovered some time before by the French. They had called it Carolina in honor of Charles IX, and some French Huguenots had tried to plant a colony there, which had been destroyed by the Spaniards who massacred 200 men, women, and children. It was probably when engaged in the civil wars in France that Raleigh heard tell of the wondrous fertility of these lands, and when he matured his schemes of founding a colony, it was to this coast that he turned his attention. Amadis and Barlow had a very successful voyage, of which they have left a narrative. 
as they drew near the coast they smelt so sweet and so strong a smell as if they had been in the midst of some delicate garden for one hundred and thirty miles they sailed along the coast before they found an entrance then they landed on the island of wokoken the southernmost of a group of islands in pomlico sound and took possession of it in queen elizabeth's name this island was so full of grapes that the very beating and surge of the sea overflowed them the vines covered the ground everywhere and climbed toward the tops of high cedars the island had also many goodly woods full of deer and hares the trees were chiefly cedars and all manner of spice-bearing trees after three days some of the natives appeared and one came on board the ship willingly and without any fear the next day many more came very handsome and goodly people and in their bearing as mannerly and civil as any of europe they had friendly intercourse with the natives and trafficked with them exchanging tin and copper dishes for skins and dyes after some days a few of the english ventured further up the creek and found an island roanoke by name where was a small native village here they were received most hospitably the women washed their clothes and prepared a solemn banquet for them roanoke was sixteen miles long and there were many other islands in the group all fertile and covered with goodly trees the soil the most plentiful sweet fruitful and wholesome of all the world Amadis and Barlow explored no further, but returned to England about the middle of September, and Raleigh was well satisfied with the report they brought him. Queen Elizabeth christened the new district Virginia, that it might always bring back to men the memory of their virgin queen, and Raleigh set about at once to plan a larger expedition which was to plant a colony in his new possessions. Raleigh did not venture to lead this expedition himself. He was afraid to leave court, lest he should give his enemies opportunities to conspire against him. Leicester, his former patron, had grown bitterly jealous of his favour with the Queen. The expedition was therefore entrusted to Ralph Lane and Sir Richard Grenville, both men who had led stirring lives and taken part in the Irish and Continental Wars. They left Plymouth on the 9th of April, 1585, taking with them Barlow and Amadis as pilots neither grenville nor lane were fitted for the arduous task before them grenville was bold and impetuous and had learnt from the spaniards to treat the natives with cruelty regarding them only as people to be robbed he wanted to grow rich either by gaining booty from the spaniards or by robbing the natives on the way he loitered about the seas hoping to fall in with spanish vessels and when he reached virginia on the twenty sixth of june he did nothing to help the colonists his treatment of the natives may be judged by the account left of this voyage in which after stating that they were well entertained by the natives the writer goes on to add one of our boats with the admiral was sent to demand a silver cup which one of the natives had stolen from us and not receiving it according to his promise we burnt and spoiled their corn and town all the people being fled Grenville also managed to quarrel with Lane, and after spending seven weeks in exploring the coast, returned to England. On the way back, he captured a Spanish vessel of three hundred tons, richly laden, and reached Falmouth on the 6th of October. Lane was left alone in Virginia with a hundred men. Grenville promised to return to them early in the next spring with new colonists and stores of provisions. Rafe Lane was no better suited than Grenville to found a colony he determined to establish himself on the island of roanoke 
and built a fort which he called Fort Ferdinando. But he built no dwelling houses, he sowed no corn, and made no arrangements for supplying his colonists with provisions, but trusted to the Indians to do everything for them. He writes in enthusiastic terms of the island, calling it the goodliest isle under the cope of heaven, so abounding with sweet trees that bring such sundry rich and pleasant gums, grapes of such greatness yet wild as France, Spain, nor Italy have no greater. The climate so wholesome that we had not one sick since we touched the land here. The people naturally are most courteous. Yet he made no attempt to profit by this extraordinary fertility. His one idea seems to have been to explore the country with a view of finding mines. He was led on by a tale told him by the natives of a country where a soft pale metal, either copper or gold, was to be found, in such quantities that the people beautified their houses with great plates of it. But he was obliged to return before he reached this land of promise on account of the failure of his provisions. He looked upon this as the most important part of his proceedings, for he said, The discovery of a good mine, by the goodness of God, or a passage to the South Sea, or some way to it and nothing else, can bring this country in request to be inhabited by our nation. This remark shows how unfit the adventurers were to found a colony by patient labor, even in a land where nature was most bountiful. Meanwhile, the colonists who stayed at the fort whilst Lane explored had been ill-treating the friendly natives. They behaved to them as though they were their slaves, and soon aroused their resentment. The natives, too, began to be less afraid of the white men, since they saw that their Lord God suffered them to sustain hunger. The chief friend of the colonists amongst the natives died, and the natives, wearied of the hard usage they received, plotted to destroy their taskmasters. Their plan was to refuse, first of all, to supply them with provisions. They foresaw that want would disperse the white men in search of food, when they would be more easily able to kill them. In truth, when the native supplies were withdrawn, the colonists were so hard-pressed for food that Lane had to disband his company into sundry places to live upon shellfish. Lane's vigilance, however, prevented the plots of the natives from being successful. When it came to a trial of strength, their superior arms gave victory to the white men, and the natives fled, whilst their king was left amongst the slain. This happened on the 1st of June, 1586, but as Grenville had never returned with his promised stores, it would have gone hard with the colonists had not chance brought them a welcome friend. On the 8th of June, Lane was told that a fleet of 23 sail had been sighted, but whether friend or foe was not known. The next day it was discovered that Drake himself was the leader of this fleet. He was returning laden with booty from a piratical expedition to the southern seas, and touched at Roanoke to visit the English colony there. He was most friendly to his countrymen in their distress. At first Lane asked him to carry the weak men among the colonists to England, and leave him some new hands with provisions and shipping to carry them to England in August, by which time he hoped to have finished his exploration of the country but a terrible storm seems to have frightened the colonists, and with one voice they asked Lane to beg Drake to take them all back to England with him. To this request Drake readily assented, and on the 19th of June they set sail and the colony was deserted. 
Very soon after their departure, a ship which Raleigh had sent off, laden with provisions and stores for their relief, arrived at Virginia. Not finding the colonists, it returned at once to England. A fortnight after it had left, Sir Richard Grenville arrived with three ships fitted out also for the relief of the colonists. He travelled into diverse parts of the country to see if he could hear any news of their colony, but he found the places which they had inhabited desolate. They had left all things confusedly, as if they had been chased from thence by a mighty army. And no doubt so they were, adds the chronicler of the voyage, for the hand of God came upon them for the cruelty and outrages committed by some of them against the native inhabitants of that country. Grenville was unwilling to lose the possession of that country which Englishmen had so long held, so he left fifteen men at Roanoke, furnished well with provisions, and set sail for England again. End of section 6